History Lecture 110. I think I'm finally uh, on target. Uh, yesterday was 109, and uh, this is 110. We are um, closing down on the years of the Holocaust and the Shoah, um, which is next week, and shout out to our friends. That's, a, that's one of these classes I really strongly encourage you to be in. Um, as I said, the way there's so much to do in the modern era, rather than going purely chronologically, obviously we're following a, an approximate chronological sequence, but I am bouncing around somewhat intentionally because I'm, I'm focusing on issues, on themes. So yesterday, for example, we, we, we uh, paid particular attention to the whole military angle of the Jewish people and, and then developments where, where that really became incredibly relevant in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Um, uh, today we're going to talk about um, different Gedolim who were alive in the period before the Shoah and obviously their lives and what, what they did to impact Plal Yisrael <coughs> will we'll paint a certain amount of the, um, the background um, moving into the Shoah. Um, the uh, Hart Svi, I happened to just mention him, somebody asked me a Shaila, um, I referred to his heter on using electric shavers. Uh, that's one of that's one of that's one of his uh, this morning and not this afternoon. Mamish, right? I just spoke about the Hartzvi. Um, so his full name is Ratzvi Pesach Frank. Who is this I'll I'll actually I'll describe it. Yeah, no, it's important. He's one of the first post scheme um, to enter to, to break open the discussion because um, well, I guess I'm going to get into it now. Jacob Schick put out on the market. I think the year was 1931, 1932. The first commercial electric shaver. Raising the issue for the first time, would that be okay? Razor. We know, what's that? Razor the issue. It's, a, it's a electric razor. Electric razor, but it's, we call Ra it. Issue. Raising the issue, though. I'm raising the issue, thank you. All right. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, that was a close shave. The, um, so, uh, the issue is, um, it's, a, it's a Torah prohibition. It actually comes up in, the, in our, the third chapter of Makos. Uh, as of us may get to there. Um, the third chapter of Makos about um, taking off the bal uh, takif, not to um, take a razor or a razor-like instrument to remove the hair from the face. But in theory, the electric shaver is something that has some kind of um, intermediate so that it doesn't really give you that close shave. Um, and he's one of the first to take on the issue, and he comes out saying that indeed it doesn't have razor-like properties, and with some caveats and some, some conditions, he, he, does, he, he does allow it. Um, famously, Rav Moshe Feinstein, uh, later that same century, never wrote about the topic, but he gave many uh, permits, permission, he gave permission, gave the Teterim uh, verbally, and that's well known, Rav Moshe Heinemann, Cites Rav Moshe frequently, and they ask him which shavers are okay and which are not. Usually, the rule of thumb: the lift and cut are a problem. The closer the shave, usually that usually indicates something that's more of a problem because uh, then you're getting closer to a razor-like property. Um, most of the other post scheme then and today prohibit electric shavers. Ironically, because most of the um, Torah world, especially young men, yeshiva bachrim, um, do in fact shave or they use depilatory powders, 
or creams, like a mare type of thing, which indeed, we, we remember I mentioned this back in the days of the Ridfa, in the, um, of the Rishonim in the, in the, in the uh, 13th century, um, 13th, 14th century, describes people using some kind of uh, powder to remove facial hair. It is effective. It does remove your facial hair, and if you leave it on a few seconds beyond what's recommended, it also tends to take off some of your face in the process, so um, try, <coughs> try not to do that. Um, but um, most of the, most clearly, most of the um, Olam relies on these heterium to, to use the electric shavers. Again, you have to know which shavers are kosher and which are not. Um, <coughs> I know that <coughs> just this morning, um, Eitan Van asked me the question. Um, he, he mentioned that Rabbi Greenwald quoted, a, quoted another Rav saying that, I'm quoting somebody, quoting somebody, quoting somebody, bringing the ghoul in the process, and, uh, and he quoted somebody um, saying that the, a young man who doesn't shave, he said something clever, I forget what it was, what was the formulation, but clearly against young men growing out beards as being problems possibly with Yuhura, being a little arrogant or uh, pretentious and so on, and I think that depends. There are, I know um, young teenagers with their, you know, it doesn't look particularly put together or camped, uh, they have this straggly thing coming on before they have a beard and that's something else. <coughs> <coughs> last somebody to their 20s or beyond even some people don't have full facial hair but and that could look unseemly um, but on the other hand if you have a lot of people who are doing that then it's no longer so un unusual and that would make sense that they might do that especially given that most folks can say it's prohibited um, but there is a major idea I think what Greenwald is really pointing to is trying to be normal and if you're in a place where everybody shaves and you don't and you look bizarre as a result maybe that's what he's speaking to um, the Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank was actually a chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. He was a major posek. Um, he learned in Tells back in the old country. He makes Aliyah in 1893. He was 20, 20 years old, but he had Baruch Hashem Arichus Yomim. He was, his, his dates are 1873 all the way until 1960. Um, he had some other groundbreaking rules, also controversial, not everybody agrees with them, but they often quote him. He was, um, he was one of the post who permits gelatin from animals. Uh, a classic way of making gelatin is to convert bones into, uh, into, in, into, into a, in a gelatinous kind of a, a, a <coughs> material. <coughs> and he said, even animals that aren't shechted, uh, who are not properly shechted, you could eat that with the svara that, um, that it's no longer really identified with the animal. Once it's, once it's changed its form, it's no longer the same. Other post scheme certainly take that on and, and question, question that and, and, and do, do prohibit it, but uh, uh, he's often cited on that. He has another heter. Um, he, uh, there's a controversy around powdered milk that the source of it was non-chal of Israel milk and on similar grounds, he, he permits it, and Chazonish, among others, said it was pro, uh, prohibited. Um, he, <coughs> there was a, they came out with the elect electronic Chanukiah, and he forbade that. Um, and many others. You'll hear his Psaq Halacha. He's, he's um, one of the figures who does, who does a lot and says little. We don't hear of him as much in the political sense. Sometimes, some of the Gedolim we see very active in the world, um, and others, others writing many chuvas that impact our daily lives. Um, I think maybe the next figure might figure somewhere in between. I've quoted him a few times before. He's buried right around the corner from us in the Sanhedria, um, basic Faros. No, right, right, where, where Ravadia would be buried later, but um, there are, it's not just Ravadia's 
Uh, you might, you might not. Sometimes you get the impression it's just his basic faros, but uh, there really are a number of, of, of very, very important individuals there, and including many I'm about to mention now: the uh, Rav Aryeh Levine, Rav Yaakov Moshe Charlap, the um, the Gesher Chaim now, Rav Yechiel Michal Tukachinsky. Uh, I think Yunai, my son, has Chabrus uh, with one of his descendants now. Maybe I think in the afternoon uh, seder, in fact, um, was born in Lita, Lithuania. He made Aliyah when he was eight years old. Uh, and learned ultimately with Rav Shmuel Salant, and I mentioned him discussing Rav Shmuel Salant because he would marry Rav Shmuel's granddaughter, and be, um, since Rav Shmuel Salant didn't leave much writing, in writing, a lot of his Piske Halacha came to us by way of Rav Tukachinsky, um, the, the, the Gesher Chaim. Um, later on, he learned by the Rav Shmuel Salant when he was a student at Eitz Chaim Yeshiva, and he eventually would, be, would become one of the Rashi Yeshiva, in, in Eitz Chaim, remember Eitz Chaim, maybe yesterday we mentioned Rav Yisrael Zalman Neltzer was also Rosh Hashiva for a long period there. He, um, he, he contributes significantly. Uh, he writes widely, he's a, he's a well-renowned posek. He, um, his book, The Gesher Chaim, is um, considered the basic work for students on the laws of Avelus. And when people learn Avelus, they learn it's a three-volume work. The first two volumes are straightforward halacha. I cited it a lot this year, but let's say in describing what we can and can't do by the Kever Vatsadi. If you remember this discussion, he's of the view. He's ma. Say it again. No, that one's that one predates him. That's certainly an accepted halacha. No, he raises the whole. Um, what are you doing? The question of what do you do when you're at the Kever Vatsadi? Um, you certainly can't dive into tzaddik. That's a vodazara. But what if you ask if the tzaddik be a maybe it's yosher and intermediary between Yerodesh Baruch and he asks that critically, implying that he doesn't really like that idea, um, but then he understands that it's a widespread minhag of of, of Yisrael to do that. So he's malamitzlus. He brings he brings a justification for that practice, uh, otherwise indicating that better to go to a basic faros and just dive into Hashem. And then he answers the question: Well, then what do you what do you need to go to basic faros for? If you're just having to Hashem, come to shul. And, and he explains the mystical significance of the basic Kavaros. Um, in the third volume of the, of the three-volume work, it's on Hashkafa, on life and death, and it can be read as a Musr book, and I did once, and it's just fantastic, deep. Uh, I, one of the pieces that I quote frequently, because you get things that you absorb and you internalize, and then you wind up becoming part of the things that you quote a lot, is a wonderful bit on, on what he calls Aflulit hahergel, aflulis hahergel, which means the blindness of habit. And he describes what most of us fall into of going about our business, having our routines, and thereby becoming blinded to what's obvious, the obvious deficiencies of our lives. People go around, they, they just do things as if they're totally normal. They use um, phones in the middle of sheer, they um, and did all kinds of things, and they... Um, um, they, um, and, and, and he sets up the following parable. He says, imagine twins who were born, have I said this to you? That's great. Anyway, twins are born, and one of them is mitumtam, is, is, is not fully functioning. And the other one is, as we say, normal, whatever that means. And they, somehow they, the first one is able to survive, but he's not functional in the world. They have to take care of him. Uh, the other one grows up, is successful, doing well, doing Torah, 
Um, when, they each, when they reach the age of 30, the first child suddenly comes to, comes to his senses and miraculously has all of his intellectual wits about him, is able to speak and function uh, overnight. And his reaction to this, to as it were, waking up is one of miraculous self-discovery, of, of, of just being in intense simcha with every little detail of existence and noticing all the things that we tend to take for granted. Look at my hand and, and my thumb. Sort of like the way if you ever watch babies and they're sometimes looking at their hand and you realize this baby's discovering its hand for the first time. It doesn't know what it is. And he's looking at it and appraising it. Imagine doing that as an adult, fully formed with, with, um, with intellectual sharpness. And that's what he says, that's what ha happens. The other one, though, is listening as, the, as his twin is discovering the world, and he gets annoyed after a while. He said, okay, we heard you already. You know, stop with the uh, revelation, stop with the wonder. And Rav Tukhachinsky concludes the um, discussion saying, which one is the normal one? The problem in life is we become blind to our lives, to the miracles all around us, to the, to the, to the fantastic nature of creation and the universe, and it all becomes old hat, and, and then we suddenly live and die without appreciating much of anything in between. He said, he said uh, I, I often distinguish between um, two, world, two words. One is childish, don't be that. But the other one is childlike. Sort of like the first brother becomes, is, retains that childlike wonder at the uh, greatness of life. And that's something that we should strive to maintain throughout our lifetimes. Most people don't. Most people become jaded and bitter as they age. That's something we should try to avoid. Um, he has a, another work called the, he sets basically the standard Ruach Eretz Israel, which is kind of like what you see on the Bima right outside the doors. You know what I'm referring to? The Luach? Yeah. Say no if you don't, because I'll dash right out and show you. Look. Okay. That was unintended, I think, toward the process, but it'll recover. Um, this is more than just the Sofsman Kriyashma. It gives you virtually everything you need to know about the complex workings of halacha and you know, when's Kiddush Levana and, and, and when is the earliest time we can say we have a new bracha coming up in a few days what's the bracha that we get to say once a year Birkas Ilanos right, only in springtime from Rosh Chodesh you get a little bit on Birkas Ilanos here, um, everything you need to know about life and, 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 and deadlines and which parsha it is and so on. That's the Luach Eretz Yisrael. Uh, it, there's a lot of different commentary and so on. So he sets this, the basic standard Luach Eretz Yisrael and um, yeah, impactful, impactful individuals. Like it was Rav Tukhachinsky who I who I quoted when we learned the Pumas of Shemitah as quoting his uh, wife's grandfather and, and the Maral Diskin in saying that had they observed that fateful Shemitah that, uh, that time around, that um, they felt that Mashiach was around the corner and that that was a missed opportunity that we didn't. He also has one of two, the two major views on where the international dateline is. And you've heard me tell the story before of the international dateline, and it's a nice introduction to our next figure, who I'm going to st stand for a while because this impact is immense, and that's the Chazonish. Um, you remember the story of the Mir Yeshiva students who um, got visas first to Vienna, 
premier Poland, and after Vienna, they got visas to Kobe, Japan, and while in Kobe, Japan, eventually got visas to Shanghai, and the Mir went to Shanghai um, for, for the, most of the duration of the Shoah, uh, and many of the students and the, and the teachers and their families were able to survive that way. Well, when they got to Kobe, Japan, they suddenly found themselves in it with, with, a, with a, an unusual shaila unique to the modern era. It had come up once during World War I and Paskin, <laughs> in a way that the, the, the Rav Paskin did, his, his position was not accepted. Uh, this is, this, it was this episode that became more, more famous and celebrated. Um, they asked while they were in Kobe and Yom Kippur was coming, is today Shabbos, or excuse me, is tomorrow Shabbos or the next day Shabbos? They needed to know. Because um, in halachic terms, we don't necessarily rely on the Greenwich date line that was established arbitrarily in England uh, in the 19th century. Everything has a halachic uh, qualification, quantification, and we need to know, and they needed to know, especially not only is today, Shema, is today Shabbos, tomorrow Shabbos, because if you don't know, what do you do? Suffolk, dear Isa, Luchumrah, what do you do? You keep two days of Shabbos, 49 hours of Shabbos. There was this whole thing where this guy in uh, the Holocaust, he couldn't tell which day was Pesach, so he had to keep a week extra on both sides. Okay, it's a whole discussion. It's one of my favorite shiurim. If you're interested in the topic, I do indeed have a file, it's, and I have a I have a shiur that's up online. Two. If you're interested, two. It's two. Yeah, it takes two different classes. What's that? Where do they run into the issue? In Shas? No, no. Like, why? Why does it suddenly become an issue? Because yeah. the Jews were suddenly circumnavigating the world and getting to places in the Far East that they never went to before. But I think Kobe still over the date line. Well, that's exactly the question. Where's the date line? Uh, but on the, in the secular one, it's in the... It's yeah, but we don't go by the secular one. Who uh, says so that it has they, anything with halacha? Right. And the question is, is there a lacuna in halacha? Is there anything in halacha that is somehow unprecedented without any source in the Torah and the Talmud in our, in our literature? Uh, and the Chazunishi answers that question decisively, no. Everything, everything is in it, you just have to turn it over. And um, so the students wired Eretz Yisrael for an answer. Yom Kippur was coming, and they were concerned about the, pro the prospect of fasting for 50 hours straight. Um, even though we saw a good history test, we saw two famous figures at two different points in history who did indeed keep two days. Suffolk Yom Toshen Shogalios for Yom Kippur, they fasted for, for 49, 50 hours. Do you remember who they were? One was, in the, one, one was the Amorayim, and I just mentioned them this morning in Gemara Shir, Rava, right? And, and the other was one of the Balitos, was the Rihazakim, like Rava. They fasted for 20, and, and the Mir was prepared to fast for two days, but you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could resolve this issue and get a Pesach Halacha so that we don't necessarily have to fast for two days, and in fact, they got two answers. They got an answer from the Gesher Chaim, and they got an answer from the Chazunish, and um, each one, fascinatingly, and I think each one independently, they don't agree, but they very persuasively prove from different Gemaras where the international date line is. And I refer you to that shira. I'm not going to take, take more time to... Wait, uh, wait, wait, just, just say where it is. Um, well, according to the Gesher Chaim, it bisects Alaska and crosses the eastern Pacific Ocean. Whereas the Chazonish, and the truth is, there's a machlokus about the position of the Chazonish, the two possible readings of the Chazonish. The Chazonish would have it running over Australia and main, um, mainland China, but mostly, uh, well, this is the question, does it go through China or does it just, um, does it go along the edge of the continent? They have these places in the Gemara? No, not explicitly, but they, in indirect Gemaras, they don't appear necessarily to be referring to our question. They make very persuasive arguments that you can deduce where the international deadline would be. 
date that they find would be based on that. You realize the prospects are very, very interesting in halacha, just to alert you to the issue, that it's po entirely possible then that on one side, of the, one side of the street, it's Shabbos, and on the other side of the street, it's Yom Chol. Depending on where you might put this line. Can you walk from Shabbos to Yom Chol? A good shaila. What about a woman counting her seven clean days uh, after she's menstruated? If she crosses over into yesterday, did she skip a day? What about counting Svirasa Omer? And like that. Okay, Gesher Chaim is one of the first authorities to actually address that question. Is it, um, yeah, the Chazunish has the accepted line, as I said, it comes to Indonesia, Western Australia. Um, yeah. And, and in, in Mir, they accepted that the Chazunish is Psaq. Okay. Chazunish. What a life. What a life. And what a, what a figure. Uh, his full name, you should know, is Avram Yeshaya Karolitz. He, uh, he lived between 1878 and 1953, which is not necessarily as long a life as we've seen other Gedolim uh, Rezolchim to live, but um, he was sickly and weak his entire life. So the man that, that, that he managed to endure through uh, personal uh, hardship, and, 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 and lead the kind of life. I, I assert, this is my own personal opinion if, after knowing him, and certain gedolim are so, um, one, so one of a kind, such uh, decisive figures. Um, I, I assert that he was by far, despite the apparent frailty of his physical being, the strongest man in the last century. Uh, I'll try to make that case now. You'll, you'll, you'll decide if you agree or not. He was initially at Volozhin, he learned by Rav Chaim Brisker, he learned by Rav Oz Chaim Ozer-Guzensky. Um, in 1911, he published his Sefer anonymously, the Chazonish, and nobody knew who he was. And it was just the Chazonish, he didn't sign any authorship. One of the reasons why he's known for his Sefer, because, because uh, people didn't know who he was for a period. How anonymous was he? Um, uh, Rav Aryeh Henkin, who was a major Talmud Chacham, once he, um, his wife, uh, ran a shop. And the Chazonish kept the books, like we see so many Vigdoli making sure that everything's done according to Halacha. And once he visited the shop and he saw the Chazonish and he had no idea who he was talking to. He thought he was just going over to a shop, a shop owner. <coughs> and so Ravhenkian approached him and said, um, Do you um, ever take time to learn? Because as a Rebbe, he was trying to encourage all these common Ame Haaretz, would they ever learn Tyra? So he said this to the Chazon Ish. Can you imagine what he must be feeling in Olam Haba? Right? And was, this is what he said to the Chazon. But I mean, he did it, obviously, Shem Shemayim, it was all very good. He said, you ever spend any time learning? And the Chazon Ish said, when I find time, only about 18, 20 hours a day. <clears throat> he didn't say that second part, but we, we know that that's what it was. Uh, years later, he would, um, his, his greatness was recognized only when he was about 50, meaning his safer was published um, anonymously. Most people didn't notice it at first, and it gradually emerged, kind of like if you remember the description of, this, of the um, Stechemed, who just, where'd this come from? People have that kind of sense of, we have a guggle in our world and nobody, nobody knows who he is. That was the nature of the discovery of the Chazonish. Um, and eventually, his fame, his, his, fame would, his fame would spread far and wide, um, it, furthering my contention that our system is one of pure meritocracy. The only way you can you can really be a gadol is if you um, you earn you you earn your stripes. 
uh, nobody would suddenly um, accept it unless unless they you know saw your uh, your authentic greatness. Um, as a young man, he had recently married. He moved to a small village near Kovno, Chvedan, near Kovno, and he started learning. He saw the Chavrusa with the um, local rav, the Maridasra, but uh, a rav by the name of Moshe Rosen. Um, we know this story <coughs> because the Rav Moshe Rosen was older, uh, a generation older than the Chazanish, later told the story to Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky. That's how the story came out. The Chazanish never told this story to anybody. It came from somebody else. Uh, that's often the case with stories of, of Gedolim. They, they tend to keep their cards uh, to themselves, um, but other, we, we find out from others. So um, they started learning together, and the Rav, as he was learning the Chazanish, was this young man, and he was learning with him, and he, uh, he, he realized he was, the, the Rav was asking this young man all of his shilos. And the Rav realized, we have, I have, I'm learning with the Gadol right here. Who is this young man? And nobody, nobody ever heard of him. And um, immediately, once, once he realized, once, once the Rav figured out his identity, you know, that he was somebody, he made the Rav promise not to reveal his, uh, his, 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 his greatness in Torah. He wanted to, to stay uh, quiet on the subject. Um, he, he was sworn to secrecy. Um, at one point, the Chazanish comes to the Rav and he asks him, he says, Rebbe, I'd like you to do me a favor. There's a very poor man, Yankov der Blacher, right? Yankov the shoemaker, who's fallen sick. And he's in some extremist right now. He's got problems. Um, the Rav was shocked because the Chazanish was a masmid. He spent his days and nights learning all the time. How then, simultaneously, could this big I mean, bookworm, Talmud Chacham, masmid, also somehow have, have his finger on the pulse and know the various chesed needs of the individuals in the community? He wasn't even the community Rav, but somehow the Chazanish made it his business to know who had problems. So he, he, he was astonished. How does the Chazanish know who, that this man had poor health? And um, then the Chazanish elaborated, he said, um, you and I should go visit him. I'll tell you why. Part of his bad health is due to the fact that his wife berates him and has no respect for her husband. She thinks he's a nothing. And Yankov feels terrible about himself. And he says, if you and I go, um, it'll help his stature in his house. She'll say, wow, the Rav came to visit because that's not something that was done so frequently. Uh, and, they, and, they, uh, and they go and they visit the man and there's everybody in town, where are they going? Nobody ever went out. They went to Yankov, Yankov, they went to Yankov de Blacher. And he suddenly, not only did his wife start revering him, the people in the town saw him in a new light, and he, he had a certain um, stature and cloud as a result of that. And the Chazanish quietly behind them sees the scenes, trying to preserve Shalom Bais uh, for Klal Yisrael. Um, that, was, that was very much his nature. I tell these stories to try to give you a picture of the total person. Sometimes if you only learn the dry halacha, you don't get the, uh, you don't always see um, the immense chesed that, the, that some of the gedolim do. Um, he makes Aliyah in 1933. And when he came, Rav Chaim Mosebrzezinski, the gadol in Europe, wrote, Ari Ole mi Bavel le Eretz A lion is coming up from Bavel. He's making a, a, a slight reference to the Talmud uh, when I think it's where Rav Kahana, it's Marav Kahana, Rav Kahana comes up uh, to, to Eretz Yisrael, uh, he, and he's, he's making Aliyah. I mean, when the Chazanish, when it, when it, just like when Yaakov Vinu left town, so Yatza, everything, all the, all the greatness of the town goes out. When, wherever the Chazanish goes, his Torah greatness follows him, and, and, and Eretz Yisrael is, is inheriting a Gadol, and it could not have been uh, at a better 
more urgent time because the state of affairs, and I alluded to this uh, a couple days ago, the state of the Torah world in Eretz Israel in 1933 was at an all-time nadir. Um, Zionism at this point, as we talked about a couple days ago, had utterly captured the imagination of the Jews living in Eretz Israel, whether they were part of the original secular socialist Aliyah, or whether they were from religious homes, Yeshuv Yashan, Yeshuv Chadash, people got caught up, and especially young people, because it's so glamorous, it was so exciting, they were part of this adventure. What would you rather do? You want to go out um, clearing the land that hadn't been tilled for centuries to make it into, you know, to burst forth and give new produce in the land, be part of this great ideology, getting your fingernails dirty, as it were, uh, or do you want to sit in the, in the, in the, um, in the dank chambers of the base medrash trying to break your head over tosfos, right? Young people aren't naturally inclined always to tosfos. That's why we, we take some discipline on our part to, uh, to stay with it. And um, this halutznik spirit, the pioneers, um, right, with all of its uh, dr swamp draining and building new cities and planning estates and all the idealism, and there was a religious aspect to this idealism, it felt like it was the wave of the future. And it seemed, from that perspective, you look at the Torah world and all of its practices as somehow quaint, irrelevant, not, not, not as pressing, not as compelling. Um, the Yeshiva Yashan had a few old yeshivas in some of the, in, in the big city of Shalim was certainly the yeshivas, but not much, and they were all struggling along. We saw the largest yeshiva in Eretz Israel in 1829. Yeshivas um, base, uh, Knesset's base, base Israel in Hebron that was destroyed. It would move to Yushalayim but, uh, a couple years later, and um, but it, it was it was weakened. I mean, you remember many of the many, twenty-four of the students were murdered in those riots. Um, so there, the the that was the old school. That was the Yeshuva Yeshan, the Yeshuva Chadash, who are theoretically, theoretically religious. We associate them with the needed Kiva population today. Um, they had in all of Palestine at the time they had one functioning yeshiva. It was called Lomza. It was in Petach Tikva. Um, Rav Chaim Kanievsky learned there, among among many others. That was the place. That's where you learned. But Lomza he, in Petach Tikva. No, he lived in Lomza. That was the majority. That was where he, uh, as, as a bacher, that's that was spent years there. Most of the students, however, who learned in Lomza, which is the only only yeshiva in all of the yeshiva chadash, all of the new. When I say yeshiva chadash, I'm talking about beyond the four holy cities, which was now the main populated areas of Jewish. Palestine at the time, they had one yeshiva, and most of the students who studied in Petach Tikva came from Europe. I Meaning they weren't even part of the yeshuv, they weren't part of the Jewish settlement, because what were those kids doing? They were out farming the land, or fighting in, the, fighting in these new military wings of whether it was the Haganah or the Irgun or the Lehi, that was what captivated them. And that's what the Chazunish came and that's what he discovered, and um, he lacked any institution. <laughs> He was personally extremely poor. You'll hear just how poor in a moment. Uh, he had no resources. Um, what he had was a powerhouse will and, and his personality. And he, he um, resolved immediately upon his arrival, and he wasn't alone. He wasn't single-handed, but he was probably more than any other personality the one who put it over. Um, shortly after his arrival, <coughs> his brother-in-law, his sister's Husband, the Stipler Gaon, who's Rav Chaim's father, 
right? Kilis Yaakov, he would arrive. The Ponovitcher Rebbe would arrive. You'll hear, we'll meet, we'll meet all of these great figures. Um, and they joined, the pro- they joined this process. But the Chazanish says, we are going to build yeshivas and we're going to build them all over Eretz Yisrael. The yeshiva movement will come to Eretz Yisrael and will save Torah Jewry. He is, by most accounts, the architect of today's Haredi world and the, the society in which learning has become front and center and it's a chiddish. What he did, what the Panavitcher Rebbe did, uh, of saying that this is now institutionalized full-time kolel learning for, for people um, long after years of marriage and even children, uh, even when pranasa needs are great, but that these people would ideally, if they can manage, um, sit and just learn these were innovations, and um, they came along with other, other kinds of issues, including who's going to make the parnasa. Now suddenly the women were sometimes the breadwinners of the family, which is not what the Shulchan Aruch paskins. And that's something that all these rabbinic knew and recognized was going against standard practice. So why did they do it? Why would, why would, they, why would they go this radical direction of focusing on Talmud Torah to such an extreme? And the answer is, is they perceived a dire threat to the survival of Torah itself. Would we sustain this? Look at the challenge of sustaining Torah in Palestine, where it was within just about, you know, with, with, we talked about a couple days ago, the, the war of the languages and the very crafty um, secular Zionist machine that was, that was very much gunning for trying to, trying to get rid of the Torah institutions. They were trying to revive it. And that's, that's, what, that's, what, that's what this was about. And you look at the, um, listen, the Torah world is in a lot of trouble today for all kinds of reasons, all kinds of problems. However, it's also doing pretty well. It's large, it's vibrant, it's proud, they're great yeshivas. Uh, and and um, probably if you had, to, you had to look at one person who put that whole project over when there seemed to be no hope, you would look at the Chazanish. Um, he would persuade people, he, was a, he, he would talk, and people would fa- sign on to his project. Uh, he would fundraise, he arranged for the buildings of yeshivas, also for schools for younger boys, for Talmud Torahs, all across the country. He reinforced observance of all mitzvahs. Um, he sent people to places that had no Torah community. And he sent his students, and, and, and they would say, but Rebbe, I can't live there. There's no Torah world. He said, you'll, you'll make it. You'll, you'll be the pioneer. You'll go out, and you'll, 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 you'll bring them all back to Torah. That was his vision, and that's why he chose Bnei Brak. He went to Bnei Brak deliberately because Bnei Brak was weak. Bnei Brak is, is a capital of Torah in the world today. Some might say even the capital. Hard to say that. You still have Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, Kodesh, but it's pretty strong. Certainly up there with Yerushalayim today. Uh, that was certainly the part of, partly the, due to the Chazanish. It's funny, it's also like right next to Tel Aviv, which is like the end of You think, right, right. And that was exactly, the, the Chazanish knew all of this. He was very, very deliberate and had a, had a far-reaching vision in, try, in realizing how you try to influence Jews. You go there, you bring the Torah to where the Jews are. It will naturally, if not immediately, eventually it'll, cap, it'll, it'll catch on. Uh, he was, um, in the best sense of the word, utterly uncompromising. He said, we're coming back to Eretz Yisrael on mass. He recognized the miracle of being alive in these days that we're all a part of too. And he said, we're going to come back, and that means we have to keep the Torah. Unconditionally, uncompromisingly, according to the terms that Kaddish Baruch gave us the Torah, he gave us this holy land to live, live by the Torah, and there's no reason to compromise. And it was radical in 1933 when he came because... Very few people 
were doing that. In fact, people were compromising left and right. And you remember the Shemitah uh, debacle and where people, where people were looking to compromise on Shemitah. It wasn't just Shemitah. It was almost virtually every aspect of mitzvah observance was affected. Um, he was optimistic against the odds. He said, no, we can do this. And his optimism was infectious. People also felt optimistic after you had a, you spent, you spent a, a session with the Chazanish, you went to his shir, and you went away, you thought, yeah, yeah, we can do this. We can do this. Um, he was a pioneer in, 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 um, in writing and poskening mitzvos hatluyos baaretz, the agricultural laws. And there hadn't been much in the stretch. There hadn't been, there hadn't been much on this topic, and, and, and it was relevant and pressing. Um, at this point, the Hetva Mechira during the Shemitah year is almost universally kept all over Eretz Yisrael. And the Chazunish says no. And he waged a brand new campaign that still exists till today. The old campaigners had, as it were, were had kind of resolved themselves to the reality that the Hetva Mechira was taken over. And the Chazunish says, no, it doesn't. It doesn't have to take over. We're, we're going to fight this. Uh, and, and he's effective. And I told you the story of what happened in Komaliut, and it'll come up again. I'll, I'll bring it up in the, in, in the, in the right time. But um, the, there are many, many, not, not so many, there are minorities, but there are a list of farms and individuals around there to show that today keep Shemitah without relying on the Hetzim Mechira. We went to one, correct. And uh, this was very much, think about the Chazonish. Uh, this was his vision. This was his, his, his putting this over, his optimism. Um, now, he and others that were identified with, at the, term, at the time, maybe people were using the term Haredi. Haredi is uh, still a little premature. He was associated with the Yeshuvah Yashan. That was a term that was still used back in the 30s. Um, people in the Yeshuvah Hadash, what we would think of as modern Orthodox today, um, were critical. Often they were threatened by him because he was asking them to not compromise and their whole life was one of compromise and that's threatening to people. So they didn't like, like his message one bit, most many of them, and they, their response was Chazonish and others are extremists. You've ever heard that expression before? Ugh, those Haredim are such extremists. Extremist, you realize though, is a totally subjective term. You know who's an extremist? Anybody to the far right or to the far left of me, whoever I am, wherever I happen to be sitting, it's totally subjective. And it's usually a term used by people who feel threatened by you. And here's what the Chazanish had to say. He said, he said what most people are really doing is, ra- is rationalizing their own mediocrity, their own religious compromise, their negligence. He says, if, he says, if they're calling me extremist, for fighting for Shemitah, for, all, for, 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 for live, leading a life of Torah the way that Torah commands it, um, and being punctilious in all the mitzvahs, and that's considered extreme, then Torah requires extremism, if that's what extremism is. Um, as I said, he chose B'nai Barak specifically. It was new. Um, there was only one Talmud Torah. When he arrived, it needed chizik. Um, when he came, many people dismissed him as an unrealistic dreamer. Come on, come on, this is not relevant right now. And he struggled, not an easy life. Um, but seven years into life into Bnei Barak, um, what, what the situation, the state of affairs, the local shul had already become a serious Makom feeling. Meaning when he arrived, there was maybe more talking in the back. 
you know, the equivalent of, uh, you know, pe people not necessarily taking it seriously. And with Chazunish setting the model, setting the, setting the standard, uh, it became very serious. And indeed, the Bnei Brak, you can't picture, the, who's been to Bnei Brak before? You can't really picture this so easily today. It's now, we think of it, a big city. There was a farm. They were Polish. I mean, they were very from. They really meant well, but they just fell into this whole groove of uh, being part of the Zionist spirit, and they slackened in their mitzvah observance. And, he, and here you had, in 1940, a really ironic combination of men who learned by the Chazunish, went to shul, davened beautifully, stark, and then went about their business and, um, for, you know, they, went, they wore tzitzit and tefillin, they had mezuzahs, they sang Shabbos mirrors with all kinds of emotion, and then they went mil milking cows on Shabbos. They went and milked cows on Shabbos, which is Nisit Yeraisa. And you know how people are, you know human psychology? Omer Mutter, it's okay. You can milk the cows on Shabbos. Remember the Omer Mutter from Argumar Makos, right? And once you do a sin, and then Ravuna teaches elsewhere in the Gemara Kedushin, he says, once you repeat the sin, it doesn't feel so bad. It doesn't feel like a sin anymore because you've done it. It's familiar to you. And that was the nature. That was how these people, and honestly, it's something that's familiar to us too, probably in the way we live our lives. Um, they said it's fine to do this. And Chazanish um, fought this. And eventually he prevailed here too, and he got them to stop milking the cows on Shabbos. Um, for him, the life force of Klai Yisrael were the yeshivas. He said, he said so much so that the yeshiva has to be elevated um, beyond almost anything else. And he had an interesting psaqalacha that I wonder how people would look at this today. Um, he knew that um, later on that, it, that he was one of those who was instrumental in, 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 in um, arranging for a heter for students in yeshiva not to serve in the army. Um, this is when the state was founded initially, um, so, because there are soldiers in Hashem's army defending Klal Yisrael spiritually, uh, assuming that they're learning Torah like a soldier in the battlefield. And he said like this, he said, if there's a student who's not learning in yeshiva or not learning stark in yeshiva, he hangs out that street corner smoking cigarettes all day, I'm picturing that's my, my editorial edition, um, and he says he's, he's evading the army, he's registered in yeshiva, and he's not actually learning there, Chazunish Paskin, that student has a dean of a rodef. He's a rodef, he's a pursuer. I don't know if that meant you can kill him, uh, but he's, it's a pretty serious um, point. He says, you're rodef for the entire yeshiva world because his existence is delegitimating what all those other students who are learning, on, they're learning they're on, on fire and they're learning, yeah, he's delegitimating that. A lot of, not even around, a lot of politicians today, you can agree that someone that like there should be a test to determine if you I know. I know, I know, it's true, it's true, and it's tricky. I think today, maybe you could add one wrinkle just to, you know, we're talking about the issue right now, I'll bring, I'll bring this up. Today, the problem is, the army, it's not 100% like this, the army often means that that's the end of a, of a person's religious life. So a lot of these guys you see today, let's say, hanging out in the street corners, they're like standing outside, you know, uh, smoking cigarettes or doing whatever they're doing, not exactly learning, uh, learning, learning uh, at least not full-time in yeshiva. Um, so they get these exemptions, but you know, they're, they're wavering on the edges of Frumkai. They're sort of identified with Frumkai by being at least plausibly in some kind of yeshiva framework, Ms. Garrett, so they're kind of hanging on, and when they get married and then start having their own kids, probably will be from and probably will come back as adults generally tend to do. You, get, you, you, you graduate what's called guilty peshesrei, the, the, the age of, of stupidity, and you grow up and you get into it. But what happens is you take those kids and you throw them in the army today, there's a greater chance that they won't be from. 
So that's that's kind of the complication to this point. But the Chazunish, without without acknowledging that point, points out that the, you know they're a problem. If you got the exemption from the army, you should learn. Um, I mentioned this, but I'll elaborate. He was personally extremely modest in his needs. He owned. I I, I said this the other day. Um, he received like like most Bahrain at their wedding. Get a hat. Get a jacket. Um, and his. In his hat and his jacket, his one suit that he had his entire life was the one that he received at his chuppah. Um, he spent the day and night learning Torah. His wife provided their other needs. And he would make, he checked the books to make sure the store was run according to halacha. Um, the furniture, whatever there was in the, in the tiny little, I guess you can call it apartment, the, the tiny little room that they lived in, um, was mostly broken. The simplest possible you could imagine. Um, his, if you read the Rebinson Kanievsky uh, biography, you read the story of for many years, um, donors tried to persuade Rav Chaim and, and Rebinson Kanievsky um, to get an air conditioner. Have you been in the um, area, what's called the, the, the lowlands, the coastal plain uh, during the summertime? Very, it's hot and humid. It's very, it's very moist and oppressive kind of the heat. And uh, it's hard. It's hard, especially as they age, got harder. They tried to um, persuade them you have to have an air conditioner. And the Rebbitzin responded at one point. She said, this is the, uh, right, Reb Chaim is the, ne- the nephew of the Chazonich. So his wife, Rebbitzin Kanievsky, explained. She said, you don't understand. See, if we get an air conditioner, we set the standard of what what's people see as a minimal standard of, of material comfort. Once we get it, the poor people will feel pressure that they have to get it too. It puts too much pressure on them, so we can't get it. I think years later, when it became extremely widespread, uh, very, very recently, I think, they, they, did, they did eventually get in their condition. Maybe he was sick too. Uh, maybe he was sick too. Part of the justification for it. <clears throat> um, he never held an official position. Uh, we heard a similar thing about the Vilnagon. He never spoke publicly. Um, he was recognized as the Gadol Hador. His approach to learning was to delve so deeply into every sugya, whatever sugya he was learning, and that was obviously like Gans Shas, um, that he always, when anybody asked him a shayla, you'd get back the most, the most gorgeous, detailed, elaborate um, explanation of everything that you asked, far beyond what you could imagine. He knew everything. Um, some of his famous piske halacha, he allowed the use of the milking machine on Shabbos, recognizing that that was a better alternative, that was part of the solution to the men actually milking on Shabbos, and he said, Yerisa, uh, you use a machine, and the point of the machine was that the animal wouldn't suffer. You're not allowed to use that milk. Um, he allowed, interestingly, during the Shemitah year, what's called hydroponics, planting, um, planting and, and harvesting above the ground, as long as it's under certain conditions. Um, once, a husband asked to Shaila, he, um, the husband approached the Chazanish, people ask every Shaila and everything in life. So this is a personal nature of a Shaila. He says his wife has this, t- the man asked the Chazanish, saying that my wife, the man said, has an annoying habit of finishing her Shabbos preparations right before the end, right before Arab Shabbos. And she, she mama procrastinates and gets it right down to the wire. And, and what can I do to, um, you know, to change this crazy uh, system? And the Chazanish um, gave, her, gave him an answer. Two words. Help her. Um, 
the one once the Nituri Tar the Nituri Karta, who we'll hear about, very tiny group who have a loud voice, uh, don't represent Klal Yisrael, represent themselves. Um, they came to him once protesting um, another gadol in Bnei Brak, and they came to Chazanish to complain. So Chazanish had a very simple, smimistic, pure way about him. He said, hmm, "They came to they came all the way from Jerusalem to tell us how to behave." He did not take their criticism seriously. Um, he was vehemently opposed to any violence, any radical activity. Um, there was a radical group in Yushalayim that called themselves the Bris Knani, the covenant of the, of the fanatics, of the radical. Um, and they, they, they saw the solution to Hill Shabbos, to desecrating Shabbos. Um, their answer was to find the cars that drove on Shabbos and to burn them down. Thought, you thought the rock, rock throwing was, was problematic. Yeah, I was going to say they still kind of uh, Well, this is pretty extreme. That's a few notches more than just the rock throwing. Um, and uh, the Chazanish's response to this was to condemn it. And the way he condemned it, he said three words. Drachecha, darche, noam. All of its ways are ways of peace. That's the way you defend Tyre. Nothing to do with what these people are doing. We don't burn cars. He... Um, is a famous psaac that comes up all the time. I've mentioned it a few times this year in different classes. He distinguished between, um, clearly he opposed kfira, her heresy, heretical beliefs. Um, the state, you'll hear what he has to say about, about the new secular state of Israel. Um, but he distinguished between all of that, and it was heresy and institutionalized heresy, which was a, which was a poison, a toxic, toxic reality in the Jewish world. And on the other hand, individuals who strayed, who were not from, he said the latter, he described what we call Tinok Shinishba. This is such an important quotable piece, and everybody mentions the Chazonish, so you should know this. He says the latter group, which represents the overwhelming majority of Klal Yisrael till today, I'm quoting the Chazonish, these people need to be brought back with um, Kishrei Ahava, with, with ties of love. With with, uh, with 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 cords of with with ropes of love, um, and we approach them differently than we might have in the past. See, in the past, the garden variety rush was somebody who knew better, and so if you treated him harshly, that was a means of bringing him back. Today's people are so many generations removed uh, from 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 life that they don't know better. So we have to be very gentle, very very careful. Um, he says we have to be careful with Leif Ne'iver. We can't put a stumbling block before them. He says these people are merely Amehaaretz. They're ignoramuses, um, and so we have an obligation to sustain them, to benefit them. He says, all the more so, we can't add to the hatred. We can't add to the conflict, <coughs> because if we add to the conflict, they're just gonna, it's just gonna add to their hatred. He held that was the Leif Naiva de Is that familiar, you heard that before? You'll hear it again. I think, I think you said it with the Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, we mentioned, we stood by the cavern of Shlomo Lawrence, who um, was buried right near Rav Simcha Wasserman in um, Harmanuchos. He was a member of Knesset for many, many years on the, uh, on the what, what's, what's called today Yahadut Torah. Um, he was a young man and he had connections with the Chazonish and um, he was from Hungary originally, Rav Lawrence. And um, one time, he was very meticulous in his halachic observance, but one time he was abroad fundraising for, the, uh, for, the, for all the political activism that he was involved in. And um, because he was traveling, it forced him to miss saying Kaddish for his father's yard site, which he had never done before. And if you knew Rav Lawrence, it was completely against. 
uh, completely against his personality. So he asked the Chazoni, she came with the Shali, he said, I, I'm destroyed by this. I missed Kaddish for my father, for, say, for his yard site, because I was doing this. I think I need to give up public life. That was Lawrence's Shaila. Um, and the uh, Chazonish told him, you don't realize that your activism on behalf of Torah is Kaddish. And it's all the Kaddish your father needs for his Ilui Neshama. We often forget, sometimes we're doing basic, simple mitzvahs. And those sometimes are so much more important than anything else. You don't need to do anything extra. The Kaddish is symbolic, but if, you're, if your life is a mitzvah, that's even greater, that's greater symbolism. Um, in another instance, um, they were concerned, um, a girl's family, trying to find the shidduch for her, were concerned um, with somebody who um, didn't have much family connections. He had no yichas, and yichas is an issue in shidduchim, and the chazanish's response was, he said, um, better than a lamdan who has yich, lamdan meaning a big talmud chacham, who has yichas in money, he says, better that she should marry this boy because he has yiras shemaim, he has good midos, and he'll make her a good husband. Lazarus said that to me once, I remember too. He said, he said uh, you know, sometimes with the checklist of things that you're looking for, uh, you, know, I, I'm, you know, we're in the process for, for my daughter, uh, what you're looking for, for, for shidduch, sometimes you forget you'd also like to find somebody who's going to make a nice husband for your wife with all the other priorities you put, up, put out there. Um, in his last year, the Chazanish would be involved in a major issue, uh, a fight over whether the boys would be drafted or, and, and whether the girls would be drafted into Shirut Lumi, which, uh, which is, remains something that a lot of the girls do instead of a formal army service, they do a year of national service. Um, the Chazunish and many of the Gdolim, yeah, this is in the early 1950s, held this to be Yehareg Valyavor, a person should die and not serve in the army. He understood if they institutionalize this and they break in and they force the girls and the boys from Torah homes go into the draft, it really wasn't to serve in the army. It was because the army is a big, bulldozing, mainstreamlining machine that makes everybody into a good, secular, national Israeli, nationalistic Israeli. And, um, and, and that's why, and, and, and that was clear, that was in the air, and that's why it became such a central issue. He told his nieces, of Chaim's sisters, the Stifler's daughters, um, he says they'd have to die before serving in Shirut Lumi. They would have to give their lives. Um, in 1953, because of this, and the issue had, had reached a hilt, they were protesting in America, it became an international you know, concern, were they going to draft the girls or not? And famously, David Ben-Gurion um, came to meet him. And um, they went back and forth. There are a lot of stories to come out of that. I'm not going to tell every story. Uh, I'm going to suffice with this. Um, the Chazunish explained to him the strength of the Torah world. See, David Ben-Gurion spoke eventually threateningly. He said, you know, we're going to win this thing because we're autonomous now in the new state of Israel. And if it comes to it, Ben-Gurion had told him, um, we'll, take, we'll send our boys in with their guns and they will take your boys and your girls by force. And the Chazanish responded, get this, your soldiers and policemen can shoot guns and you can come into our houses and you can try to force your laws on us We'll respond by opening our shirts, revealing our hearts, and we'll say, um, shoot. Go ahead and shoot. And your boys won't be able to shoot. And I ask you, who's stronger? 
the Chazonish who um, actually would die the next year um, and was utterly frail in his last years, but towered over Ben-Gurion. Um, Rav Shach said that the Chazonish was the only person in our generation who genuinely knew all of Shas. I mean, there are a lot of people who make annual seums of Shas. Malik Adolim review Shas all the time. Rav Shach said that the one who really knew Shas was the Chazonish. Um, he said that he was really, he belonged to a different generation. He felt the Chazonish belonged to the generation of the Vilnagon, perhaps even the Ramah. Rav Elchanan Wasserman was one of the closest students of the Chavetz Chaim. We got a glimpse of him as a much younger man in that precious video that was just unearthed a couple weeks ago. I don't know if, you, if it was pointed out to you who Rav Elchanan was, but he was, he was, he was in that uh, video as well. Um, he had studied with Rav Chaim Brisker, with the Panovich Rav, he was a Chavrusa. He, he studied with Rav Eliezer Gordon in Tells and Rav Shimon Shkap in Tells as well. Um, when he was a teen in Volozhin, he... Uh, Volozhin was an interesting place because it attracted some of the best minds of the Jewish people, some including, including many of the great Torah minds, but also some of the great Maskilim also went to Volozhin. It was an interesting combination. Uh, and they somehow, you know, on the surface, they appear to be very from, and on, meanwhile, they're all busy studying all their other, you know, secular things in, 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 uh, on the slide. And there was a German language club, which was clearly German language. That was the language of the Maskilim um, that... Um, they went over to him, and he was a promising young student, and they said, you know, Elchanan, do you want to come join us? And he said, sure. You know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed kind of enthusiasm. So I'll, I'll, I'll learn German. That sounds wonderful. Um, and in the middle of the base medrash, he started practicing his German out loud, which you didn't do, right? Because you're going to you know, reveal the identity of the German club kind of thing, and they all said, sha, sha, sha. He was, such a, he, was, he was such a pure, simple soul, he didn't understand why they tried to silence him. And then he realized and he left the group. Um, he was like this. He was tzmimistic, pure, simple, um, and utterly outspoken. Uh, we, we, we meet Gedolim like this, who was blunt, just said it like it was. Um, it, was it was a wonderful quality for an icon, for a role model, for a Rosh Hashiva. Didn't exactly help in fundraising. You could imagine, because he just told the donors what they didn't want to hear. You know, usually you have to ingratiate yourself and smooth them out and so on, and he was just up front. So at one point, his colleagues said, you know, Rebbe, uh, we're not doing so well uh, raising money for the yeshiva. They said, now, chas v'shalom, you shouldn't change your content of what you're saying, but maybe you could choose more neutral topics so that you don't offend prospective donors. Um, and Rav Elfanan's response, very to me, is that Rav Elfanan Vassman is the father of Rav Simcha, who, whose kever we stood by in Hamanufos, right near Rav Lawrence. Anyway, Rav Elfanan's response was, I don't understand. Was the yeshiva founded to spread MS, to spread the truth, or to raise money? Um, he was a vocal, outspoken critic of the Haskalah, a vocal, out, outspoken critic of secular Zionism. I refer you to his writings. He's, he is eloquent on both subjects. Um, a student was asked, asked him, they're considering going to Yeshiva University or Skokie, which in the 1930s was already a question, and I haven't yet talked about those institutions. We'll get there too. Um, but he asked Rav Elchanan, should I go to YU or Skokie? And Rav Elchanan's unblinking response was, um, they're both Makomos Sakana. They're both places of danger in spiritual terms. They conduct themselves in the spirit of freedom. And what benefit is there to flee from a physical danger of Europe as the Nazi party rises to go to YU or Skokie 
um, he says, to go into a spiritual danger of such an institution. That was his feeling on the subject. Um, he recommended Tor Vadas. We'll hear about all, all of the above. Um, he, Rav Elchanan said that the great Rav Eliyahu of Vilna said that the effect of Jewish suffering is that it brings the redemption closer, the final geula closer. Um, he said that because of the misfortune of a secular Jewish state, it would bring, what would happen, he felt, was that it would bring greater suffering among, on Klal Yisrael. The state itself would be the source of greater suffering. Um, and he said perhaps then this could be seen as bringing us closer to Kula, much like Egypt, much like Mitzrayim was. The bitter exile of Mitzrayim and uh, pre uh, preceding the ultimate um, redemption. Uh, maybe, maybe that's how, uh, and he lived before there was a, pre a declaration of independence of, 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 uh, of the Israeli state. Um, elsewhere he says, these are some famous statements he has, he says, the Jewish people in Gullus is like a lamb surrounded by 70 wolves. 70, of course, symbolic of all the nations of the world. He says, in this situation, and I mean, this is a metaphor that stays with me when I read the news, because that's how it feels, no? We feel just totally isolated. I think the headlines today, the uh, American administration, the president's no longer going to deal with, uh, with, the, with the prime minister. He's a okay, he's reacting. It's a reactionary thing. Um, and, the, and the president officially announced that now when they speak about a two-state two -state solutions, it's officially going back to six, uh, a pre-six-day war uh, lines. Okay, yeah. Fighting words. In any case, Rav um, says, Israel is like a lamb surrounded by 70 wolves. In this situation, all she can do, all the Jewish people can do, um, excuse me, there's... There, uh, all she can do is to try and make the wolves forget about her. Uh, do you remember one of our themes running through all of history? We win by surviving. You remember back to Yitzchak Avinu simply picking up and moving, and by um, Yochanan ben Zakkai opposing the zealots fighting, and uh, throughout history, don't make waves. Sit and do our job, l'entirekit mitzvos. Don't, don't, don't antagonize the nation. And he felt that was part of his um, opposition to a secular state that's going to ultimately um, antagonize and make hostile all the nations of the world to the Jewish people. Not, not so different than kind of our situation today. Most, most people in the world, um, Muslim, Christian, and otherwise, despise the tiny Jewish state, and irrationally so. Um, he continued, he said, he said there can, listen to how prophetic his words are, there can be no good for the Jewish people except when the world Nations are busy with other things and not concentrating on them. When the non-Jews start talking about us and can't stop talking about us, do you realize Israel, this tiny country, is on the headlines, is in the headlines every single day? He says, This is the greatest danger. This is what the angels ask in the Pasuk and Shir Shirim. What can we do for our sister on the day when they talk about her? Um was one of the Kedoshim who who was uh, murdered by the Nazis in 1941. <clears throat> so at the end, um, there were a couple survivors, and that's why we have this information. We know what happened. Um, and it was evident that the end was near. So he was surrounded by students, and he told them as follows. He said, in heaven, it seems that they have seemed that we must be righteous enough um, because our bodies have been chosen to, to give kapara to all of Klal Yisrael. So we are, 
Our obligation is to make tshuva now and immediately. And he pointed out there's not much time left. Um, we have to keep in mind that we're going to be better korbanos. I got it. We'll, we'll be better korbanos if we make tshuva. Like a korban, you're not, a kohen's not allowed to have a straight thought. That's called pigul. He said, in this way, we'll save the lives of our brothers overseas. Make sure no abominable thoughts enter our minds. Chas v'shalom, which would render us pigul. We're now performing the greatest mitzvah. Um, with fire, Yerushalayim was destroyed. With fire, Yerushalayim will be rebuilt. It's a pasuk in Zechariah. He says, the fire that will consume our bodies will one day rebuild the Jewish people. He said, so if we can get through it next week, we're going to start talking about the, the period of the Shoah.